Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a serious XM podcast available everywhere. I don't say this today because of the date on the calendar, but summer is over. Our health officials are telling us that Ontario is now in the second wave of COVID-19. The COVID-19 modeling collaborative is projecting Ontario could hit more than 1,000 new cases a day by mid-October. The Quebec government says the situation is critical, so three regions, including Montreal and Quebec City, are heading to the highest level of alert. As of Thursday, for 28 days, private gatherings with people from different households won't be allowed. Movie theaters, bars, casinos, libraries and museums will close. Restaurants can only do takeout or delivery. After weeks of daily counts of new cases in Ontario hovering around 100 or below, the numbers have been rising steadily for more than a month now. The same, by the way, is true in Quebec and in BC and in Alberta. You can call it a second wave or a resurgence. You can call it whatever you want. The virus doesn't care. All you need to know is that COVID-19 is spreading again and spreading quickly. There is hope that things will be better this time. But we don't know yet if that hope is based on evidence or on wishful thinking. And by the time we do know, it might be too late. Will we see more cases this time, but less serious illness and death? Are we only finding more new cases because of increased testing? Are hospitals and doctors on the front lines just better at battling COVID now than they were in the spring? The hope, obviously, is that the answers to those questions are yes. But we just don't know yet. Meanwhile, there are other pressing questions with more complicated answers. Why are so many non-essential businesses still operating when case numbers now are equal to what they were when we were in full lockdown? Who right now is in charge of clear, concise public health messaging? And what do they say needs to happen next? And finally, what do scientists and doctors who are fighting this virus right now want us to do to save ourselves from disaster later on? These questions are complicated, but at least we can ask for answers. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Michael Warner is the Medical Director of Critical Care at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. Hi, Dr. Warner. Hi, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing well. I, I kind of naively hoped that uh, when we spoke the last time as the first wave was winding down that maybe we would not talk again and while I'd miss talking to you um, I was hopeful but uh, that's not the case I guess there was a period of quiescence which I think uh, a lot of us enjoyed both uh, as a mental break and just a chance to to do things other than um, uh, COVID related activities as a a doctor but uh, uh, things are back in full force for sure well, I'll start the same way uh, I did the last time we spoke. How are you and your staff doing? How are you guys feeling? How's morale? So I think the difference this time is that we have familiarity with what patients with COVID uh, look like, uh, how to care for them. We've definitely changed the way that we care for them and I think are in a better position to provide them with better, more 
uh, tailored care to increase the chances that those who end up in the ICU will survive. So that's reassuring. Uh, at this point in time, we have enough PPE, which was a, a major concern in the first wave. Mm-hmm. But familiarity also can contribute to fear and anxiety because uh, a lot of us are remember what it was like to have people you know, dying on Zoom meetings and family members not being present in the ICU and having to be so super careful about everything that we did and everything we touched. And and, and I think that's causing quite a bit of anxiety. And then I think most importantly for healthcare providers, we don't see a correlation between what we're expecting to come through our doors and the, the government policies that are, I guess, not in place to uh, protect us and, and, and other people from the inevitability of the second wave. Well, I wanted to ask you, there's um, an assessment center at your hospital at Michael Guerin. And for those of us who are thus far lucky enough to not to have to have, have used one, can you describe what it's like there and, and how full it is these days? So it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've been in that lineup myself because uh, I have three children uh, aged eight and under. And when my son brought a cold home from school, which he transmitted to me, he and I both had to get tested for me to be able to work and for him to return to school. And I also look out onto this lineup at our assessment center from the ICU, and it's it's grown significantly uh, over time. And there are many more children in the lineup. There are people with lawn chairs. There are people who are there for hours. I think our hospital is doing its best to process as many people as possible. But uh, what's happening, Jordan, is the turnaround time for tests, which is beyond the control of the assessment center, is really up to lab capacity has increased to the point that test results for me took 38 hours. So I had to miss three days of work. Uh, And for our patients in the hospital that fight for the same lab capacity can take up to four or five days. And for the average person, you know, depending on the assessment center they go to can take up to seven days. So where we're failing here as a system is not being able to get our test results back uh, to people and to public health in time so that they can actually do the things necessary, whether it be isolate or contact trace, uh, to reduce the risk of spreading COVID-19 further. So I think that assessment centers have long lineups and people are there uh, to do what they should be doing, which is get tested if they're symptomatic. But uh, there are many problems within the uh, lab testing system that need to be fixed. Well, what are uh, your biggest worries about either the lab testing system or just um, the, the case rise that we're seeing in Ontario, also uh, Quebec and other parts of the country? Uh, what, what concerns you about that the most? So, I mean, it's, it's challenging to kind of organize all my thoughts on this, but we'll start with the worst possible outcome first. So people dying in the ICU, uh, and that may not be because of COVID-related illness. It could be because of non-COVID-related illness that is diagnosed late because people have not been able to access the healthcare system over the past six or seven months as they could have before. So people are going to be presenting with more advanced disease that is unfixable or incurable hospitalizations would be kind of the lower down on that kind of hierarchy of concern uh, that we're going to have too many patients in the hospital. And when I say too many patients, too many patients relative to the staff that we have. So although we didn't run out of beds in the first wave, uh, we also had a full complement of staff because our staff were not waiting in line to get their COVID test result back or waiting in line with their right. children or isolating at home. So we could have a supply demand mismatch whereby many staff are unable to work because they're sidelined waiting for test results. In fact, in our ICU, there are four of us who work there. We all have either two or three school-aged children. So <laughs> it could happen to doctors, could happen to nurses, could happen to custodial staff, physiotherapists. I mean, it really takes a village to care for our patients. So 
concerned about not being able to provide care for the patients that we that need care with COVID and non-COVID illness, including influenza. I'm concerned about small and medium-sized businesses who I think had a chance to come through this, but because things are so far out of control now, I think the government is probably going to have to drop a hammer uh, as opposed to having a tailored um, approach to shutting down components of the economy. They're eventually going to have to probably shut everything down uh, to some degree as they did in wave one because things are so far out of control and people are going to go out of business and we either need to pay businesses to close now or make sure that businesses and their employees are protected through the second wave. I'm concerned about everybody's mental health, you know, including my own and my colleagues, because this is very challenging. And I'm concerned for the socialization of our children and their education. And I think it's fundamental that we make school an essential part of the future and that we do everything we can to keep kids in school. If that means closing everything else in the economy, then so be it. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of things. I wasn't actually sure what I was going to say until you asked the question. So there it is. When you say um, this has gotten so far out of control, this might be kind of a dumb question, but for those of us who, who don't dig into the numbers that much, what tells you, what are you seeing that's telling you that it's out of control? So there's the, you know, the effective reproductive number R uh, sub, sub, with, a, with a T beside it. That's the, the mathematical term. It basically means, you know, let's say the R value is, is 1.2. That means for every 100 people that are infected with COVID-19, they will go on to infect 120 people. And that's kind of where we are in Ontario right now, which means just mathematically, then the case numbers, whether you identify them through testing or don't identify them because they're just out there, will invariably go up. And until that number is less than, or less than one, um, case numbers will not subside. Uh, so that is, that's the number, the number of positive tests per day, I don't think, I mean, obviously it's important and the media will, will report it every day and, and people like me will even react to it every day, but it's really the art value that's most important and the seven day rolling average of case numbers. And the fact that because our testing process is so inefficient and people who are most likely to be infected by COVID, I'm talking about essential workers, racialized, marginalized people, cannot afford to stand in line for an entire day, let alone not work for seven days while they wait for a test result, that I think there are a lot of people who are going to self-select not to get tested, not because they're bad people, just because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So we won't know who has COVID. And for the positive tests, we end up getting back, Jordan. Contact tracers will be getting that information, you know, four or five, six days later. You know, it's really stale dated data. And they, then their job to contact trace is much more labor intensive because the individuals who are deemed to be positive will not have known they've been positive. So they will not have adjusted their behavior in the intervening time and could potentially spread COVID to other people. So it becomes this vicious circle where things just get out of control. If I frankly think they're likely out of control already, uh, whereby it's only through policy initiatives that limit our ability to interact with strangers that are going to be efficacious. Well, I've seen you talk about um, testing a lot on social media and, and in other places. And the question that, that I see coming up um, all over the internet, I guess, whether it's right or not, is are we really seeing more cases of COVID uh, right now than we were in the spring? Or um, are we just testing a lot more now and, and it was actually further out of control in the initial wave? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And people will point to the positivity rate in kind of March, April, May that was higher than it is now. Although the tra trajectory of our positivity rate, which is basically the percentage of tests that end up being positive, is, is increasing significantly. 
We also have to keep in mind that the numbers were skewed in the first wave because so many people uh, end up being positive in long-term care homes. Kind of, we got positive. Right. Basically, if one long-term care home was hit, just about everybody in that long-term care home would be positive if they were in fact tested. So, it is true that we didn't do as many tests in the first wave, uh, and that when you test for more people, test more people, you are probably going to get more positives. But as I just outlined, I think there are lots of people who are positive who we are not testing, particularly young people who could have minimal symptoms and, uh, and not really know that their headache is a, or a sore throat or feeling fatigued is an actual COVID equivalent. So I think that the true answer is that we don't know, but by the time we get hospitalizations, which are already increasing and ICU admissions, which are starting to creep up at levels where people are starting to get concerned, we're far too late. I mean, the, the train has left the station at that point. So, you know, I, I think that we need to acknowledge that, that this is real. Whatever it is we're experiencing now is real and that the government needs to intervene to stop us from being in positions like at weddings with 50 people or going to casinos that essentially put us put us in a position to fail, that, that put people together who don't live under the same roof in indoor settings whereby COVID will spread. Uh, it just makes sense to stop those activities uh, that are known to make the public health job more difficult. In a perfect world um, with uh, governments, and I'm not singling out any level of government or any particular province, um, but with governments who were listening directly uh, to the medical experts, what would we be doing now or what would we have done in the past few weeks to organize and plan for this? Because I remember I talked to to you and, and to epidemiologists and other experts earlier this year, and they all said that, you know, a second wave will come. We have to be ready for it. Well, that's that's a, there's a lot of layers to that question, and I'll answer it kind of sequentially. So to me, our entire pandemic response comes down to leadership and who is actually in charge. So I would argue, and I think the evidence would demonstrate that when people who have scientific backgrounds, people who are epidemiologists, virologists, people not like me, but other scientists and professionals who really understand this stuff, are the voice to the people and that the government listens to what they say in the context of the government having to, to you know, be concerned itself, concerned itself with the economy, et cetera. Those countries have been far more successful. Uh, I don't think there's really any degree of trust in our chief medical officer of health in Ontario among the general medical community that he uh, is an effective communicator or leader. Uh, Premier Ford is not a scientist in any way. And Minister Elliott uh, is also not an expert in anything related to healthcare. So I think that we need to make sure that Ontarians and the government are getting the same information and acting on it from experts. And those experts right now are trapped uh, in the Twitter echo chamber or speaking through other mediums uh, to, the, to the government uh, uh, via the media. So I would like to see science lead as opposed to politicians lead and interpret the science behind closed doors. And I think if we were doing that, then scientists would have told the government or the government would have taken the summer to shore things up, to prepare for the inevitable second wave, to make sure that public health was well-funded, to make sure the digital systems necessary to transfer information among, among public health units were in place, to have a clear, transparent plan about if we get to X number of cases or an R value of this, then this policy decision will be made. Because right now, it seems like the government is reacting to the media's reaction to case numbers each day. And if we do that, we'll be perennially behind. I actually don't know what the government is going to say 
on a given day because it hasn't been laid out for us what the goalposts are for uh, economic rollback in the context of an outbreak that's getting out of control. So uh, I think that we need more transparency and with transparency, we've, we will have some accountability, but we have neither right now. We're also lacking leadership. I want to talk to you a bit about um, the stuff that's that's directly in front of you. You kind of touched on it uh, at the beginning of our chat about, you know, we know more things, we have some PPE now, but what have you and your team uh, been doing over the last few months to get ready? And, you know, what's different uh, in your world than it was when we talked in the spring? So if we're going to speak, you know, medically, uh, so in the first two weeks of the pandemic, anyone who required a significant amount of oxygen with COVID-19, we would intubate. We put a breathing tube into their lungs and intubation carries with it some significant risks. We usually have to keep people asleep with some very heavy drugs that act like general anesthetic and patients aren't mobile, which has its own risks. And, and the reason we did that is because we thought that if we didn't control the airway, the healthcare workers would be put at risk because aerosols or droplets would be spreading everywhere. In fact, the treatment that is now the mainstay, which is called high flow nasal cannula, which is basically kind of supercharged nasal prongs that blow air into the, the nose and ultimately the lungs, uh, was banned initially. And now it's, it's our go-to. Uh, so mm. I think that's something that's really interesting that the medical community has really pivoted and taken evidence uh, as it's come up, and some of it has been dubious for certain things like hydroxychloroquine, evaluated it and implemented it in real time uh, using you know, COVID patients as a living laboratory in an ethical way to make sure that, that we provide the best care as we learn more about this disease. And if you contrast that to policy decisions where we really haven't learned anything from the first wave, if I'm going to evaluate <laughs> what we're doing right now, it's, it's materially different in, in the approach. Dexamethasone, which is a steroid, which is used for other types of respiratory failure, which is cheap and relatively available, is now commonly used. And we think that helps reduce mortality in patients with severe lung disease from COVID. We're also starting to think about COVID, not just as an acute disease where the binary outcome of, of alive or dead is what matters, but also as a chronic disease where there's morbidity. Morbid morbidity is kind of the degree of illness one has from a disease and that there are patients who are going to have chronic problems, whether it's mental health, brain, heart, lung, kidney problems from COVID. And that's really important for your younger listeners to acknowledge and realize that even if they don't die from COVID, which is of course important, they could be chronically unwell from it, which I think has important long-term healthcare outcomes that are yet to be seen. What about physically, uh, like in terms of hands-on, do you guys have more beds? Have you moved things around? Do you have different protocols? So critical care works as a system in Ontario, as I'm sure it does in other provinces. So every every week the group of toronto critical care docs talks and every two weeks the provinces there's a provincial table for critical care that i sit on where we see our resources of icu beds really as a provincial resource uh, patients can be moved from hospital to hospital certain hospitals have been identified as ones that should receive more beds and resources based on what they had to do in the first wave there are different hospitals like Toronto General Hospital that provides ECMO, it's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or a heart-lung machine, which is used in severe cases of COVID when the heart and lungs no, no longer work properly. So that hospital in particular needs to have adequate resources. So we are very well prepared from an ICU critical care perspective. We've adjusted the way our nursing model works, the way our physician model works. We are ready to go in every way. And... Our hope is that we've overplanned for what's coming, but we are ready. I want to ask you something now that um, 
I'm pretty sure that I know the answer to, but you you addressed our, our younger listeners a minute ago, and I think this is an important question because I've seen it a lot that, you know, this second wave is composed of tons and tons of cases, uh, but very few uh, ICU instances and and deaths. And, you know, what do you think uh, when you see that opinion floating around? Well, I think the story is yet to be written. So that is the story today. I think that just to, to kind of parse out the first part of your question, I think the messaging uh, needs to be tailored to a younger demographic. So there may be people in that demographic who are listening to me right now, but they're probably not watching CBC or CTV news at six o'clock, you know, TikTok, Instagram, etc., other forms of social media, using influencers, people they trust who don't sound like their parents or grandparents. Those are the people we need to engage to help deliver a message in a way that doesn't berate young people because we were all young once and I can understand wanting to be with my friends all the time. We need to deliver a message in, in a way that resonates with them so that they can modify their behavior in a way that is in their best interest and also in the best interests of their parents and grandparents. So the second part of your question is, you know, what, what is young people today will be older people tomorrow, especially if this social bubble concept of, you know, 10 people uh, remains kind of uh, supported by public health officials. I think Dr. Davila really tried to burst that bubble the day before yesterday in her, uh, in her press conference in that it probably isn't safe anymore to have a social bubble, which includes people outside your household, given the number of cases uh, in the community. So I think that people will say this only affects young people and young people aren't hurt as badly. That may be true today, but we can't ignore the morbidity topic that I just discussed about chronic disease. And we also can't ignore the fact that we're expecting the peak in ICU admissions in mid to late October, and it's only late September now. You mentioned this a bit earlier too, but I want to get into it a little bit more with the time I have you for. Um, the communication around this, and you know, you just said uh, that Dr. Davila pierced the uh, bubble concept, but the bubble concept is something that I and and a lot of people I know had been relying on for months, and you know, treating that as if it was gospel. And when when things seem to change so rapidly, or even depending on which level of government you talk to, what should folks do if they're just trying to figure out uh, how to be safe, how to be responsible, and they're hearing different things? Yeah, that's a great question because I've been confused myself. So, you know, this social bubble concept of 10 people was was something that people really bought into. And then I realized as soon as school started that that concept had to get thrown out the window because my bubble now includes the bubbles of all my children's classmates. So actually, I right, stopped. But nobody stopped. said that to us. Well, I said it on my Twitter feed and so did a bunch of other people, but, and I, and I also said <laughs> yeah. that public health needs to acknowledge that in a press conference because, but they haven't and they didn't own it and they've allowed people to be in this state of perpetual confusion and that builds distrust. I think they needed to call it out, say, you know what, this was the policy, but schools really aren't as safe as they need to be. So we're going to blow it up and just stay with your household. Uh, that would have been truthful. Uh, they're kind of walking it back now, but, uh, it's probably too little too late, which is why I think we're entering a potentially dangerous time in you know, Canadian history. I don't mean to be uh, provocative, but if we're in a position where we don't trust the people who stand up at the microphone every day to keep us safe and to deliver a message that's honest and succinct and transparent, then people become very nervous. And, and I think the message that I have for people is, is you have to think for yourself and you have to act in a way 
that makes sense for your family. And the safest number of people to stay with is one. That is the safest number. And I've said that before. And if it can't be one, then it should be the people under the roof with you. Uh, that is the safest number, especially with cases rising. Uh, and I think that's the, pro the thing that government doesn't understand, that people are looking for rules and guidelines for them to structure their life by. And the government has been hesitant to, to provide those rules uh, because for whatever reason, perhaps it's political pressure, etc. They don't want to seem draconian. But uh, I think in many ways, people are on their own. And that's, that's pretty scary. But uh, I think people are familiar enough with COVID-19 to understand the general framework of how to keep themselves safe. And COVID only spreads if you interact with people that you don't normally interact with. If you don't interact with people in close quarters, then you're not going to get COVID or spread it. So that's the fundamental truth. And uh, if you can adjust your activities based on that theme and that truth, then you should be okay. Is there um, one final takeaway uh, that you'd like to share with us uh, based on, you know, things you've seen either in your hospital or in medical policy over the last few months? If there's something, a message that you're you're not seeing fully conveyed uh, that you think needs to get out there that you, that you maybe haven't mentioned yet or want to double down on. Oh, there's lots I want to double down on, but uh, you know, I've said this before. So right, you know, right now, it, nobody really knows who's at the provincial command table. Are there any doctors there? Are there any experts there? Who's actually making decisions and why are they making those decisions? And there must be people at that table who do not feel that what's going on is right. Who thinks there? Who thinks that there's inconsistency between? the policies that are announced and what's actually happening on the ground and the discussions behind closed doors. And now is the time to be the whistleblower, to stand up, to be the hero, to not be worried about the fear of retribution or whether or not you're going to get the promotion, but to say that this isn't right. And I also would encourage the premier to, you know, stop listening to what I have to say on the news or what other, I don't even call myself an expert, but what other experts say and bring us into your inner circle we want to help. We want the government to succeed and continuing to ignore scientists and experts will only make it less likely you're going to get reelected. So if that's the motivation, then bring people in uh, because there are lots of people who want to help. Dr. Warner, thank you as always for your time today. I hope we talk uh, down the road about how we successfully beat this wave back. Thank you, Jordan. Take care. Dr. Michael Warner of Michael Guerin Hospital. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find all Dr. Warner's previous episodes by searching his name at the bottom of the page. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. We will tag Dr. Warner so you can follow him directly. You can also find us in your favorite podcast player, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. You can email us. We're at TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.